everybody. Thanks for joining me. This is Karen Stefano, and I am very proud to have with me today the author of the brave, vulnerable, and ultimately hopeful memoir of Too Much Love is Not Enough, a memoir of silence of childhood sexual abuse, Rosina Bakari. Rosina, how are you? I am doing well this morning. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, your your book uh, blew my mind. Uh, it, it because it is so brave and because you are so vulnerable in it. And I the the subtitle a memoir of silence of childhood sexual abuse, obviously tells the person who's about to pick up this book uh, what it's about. Um, But I want you, as the author of this memoir, to share with our listeners what you feel is the essence of your story. The essence of the story, I think, is that silence is not a quiet space. And just because something is invisible doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. So as difficult as all of these conversations come up and and these stories come out about uh, the experience of sexual abuse, they're just, we aren't given a platform to really talk about what that means. Like we are starting to get that uh, people who seem like good people are not. They are sometimes bad people. We're starting to get the idea that um, there's something going on that shouldn't be that we have inadvertently condoned for years uh, in our culture and cultures around the world. What we're not getting is what trauma the survivor is left with. We're not getting spaces to really understand the significance of what happens, not just the legality of it. And so too much love is not enough is intended to make the invisible visible and to make the and to make the quiet have a voice. It's interesting that you say that um, because I had a, an interesting reaction, um, and this, of course, was after I'd already bought the book before I started to read it. After I'd already asked you to be a guest on this podcast and you'd accept it, um, I, I had kind of an, an interesting reaction. Like, like I didn't have the right to read this book. That I didn't have the right to have a public conversation with you about this experience because I, although I'm a sexual assault survivor. I'm not an incest survivor. And you give permission uh, at, the, at the close of the book uh, to other people uh, to read this book, to be part of this experience. And you say you don't need to be a survivor of childhood sexual abuse to help survivors break the silence. And it, it's interesting because that gave me permission. And Indira 
Hennard, I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right, who's the executive director of the D.C. Rape Crisis Center, gave you a fabulous blurb for the book. And she also uh, gives uh, everyone permission to read the book in saying it should be required reading for the human condition. And has anyone else felt what I can only describe as a sort of self-consciousness that, that I that I felt. Um, have you have you heard that from any of your readers? Uh, in so many ways, I have. Even even uh, friends that I have who have mm-hmm. bought the book are a bit intimidated by reading the book. Like yeah. it feels like an overstepping of boundaries. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what I want. What I want the book to do is break through those yeah. boundaries of silence. Like, that's exactly what the book is intended to do. And what I try and get people to address or acknowledge is that this feeling that people have, that this is something sacred, mm-hmm. is exactly what perpetuates it. Like, there's nothing sacred about incest. Like, it's not sacred. <laughs> it's just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not holding something kind and gentle to protect it, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about avoiding what makes us feel angry and dirty and unwanted and shows us the worth of humanity. And we can't continue to just close our eyes and pretend like it doesn't exist or only allow it on a surface level in which everybody can maintain their comfort. Like there is no way for society to maintain comfort and solve this problem. Right. Right. Uh, really, really well put. And yeah, really, uh, really eye-opening. Um, Rosina, would you do me a favor and read a passage for us from Too Much Love is Not Enough? Oh, I absolutely would love to. Thank you for that. Uh, this is the beginning of part two, uh, and so it's a short passage. I'll read. It says, survivors carry the pain of the silence that is forced upon us long after the sexual violation ends and becomes our permanent shadow of sadness. Rather than crying, we smile when we are forced to share space with those who violated us because they are at family functions or roam our neighborhoods. We bite our tongues instead of speaking up each time we hear the violator's name spoken in kindness by those who are unaware or refuse to recognize the damage. We shrink into numbness, unable to grow into fullness when we accommodate society's expectation to let it go. Let it go means do not grow. The words move on, invite us into silence, not healing. Lies, betrayal, manipulation, and violence need attention, not silence. Pain has a voice. Mine cannot be heard. Wow. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, that passage at the beginning of part two of the book uh, really in, encapsulates your your journey, right? Yes, right. And that's what I really wanted people to understand. And uh, for those who have not yet the book read the book yet, that begins part two because part one lays out uh, the context in which that abuse took place. And that's the beginning of the trauma in some ways, not the end. 
Does that make sense? So, like, yeah. this is, like, part one is all about how that trauma was experienced, but it doesn't talk about yet how I had had to live with that trauma. And so the other three parts of the book is all about the the the, the trauma of living in silence with trauma. Yeah, after having described what happened to you in in part in part one of of this memoir. Now, early in the book, you state healing is a work of art, and I, I just wanted to see if you could expand on that for us a little bit. What what does that statement mean to you, and has that been your experience? Yes. You know, I write on Talking Trees, and, maybe, and I know we'll get to talk about that a little bit later. I write every day to an audience of over 6,000 members on Facebook. Uh, and the reason I write every single day is because most survivors are in their 40s when they begin to heal. And we're lowering that number. I hope we're lowering that number. Uh, that's a long time to live with guilt and shame. That's a long time to live in silence. That's a long time to hold back the walls of um, trauma. And so when you begin to actually heal, we want a plan. Like we want a script for healing. If there were a script for healing, then we wouldn't live in silence (laughs) that long. Mm -hmm. And so as badly as we want healing to be scripted, it is not at all. Because even though there are 60 million survivors, everybody's plight is a little bit different, has variances. There are so many things that go into where you are on a healing path and what your healing journey will be. From the fact that I was uh, in a large family, I was the youngest of seven, that may be different if I had been the oldest of seven. The fact that I lived in poverty, that may be different than if my family uh, were health or were wealthy. The fact that I'm African-American may be different than if I were a different race. The fact that it was a sibling uh, initially may be different than if it's my father. Like there are a, mm-hmm. a, at least a hundred significant factors that determine what that healing journey looks like. So no one can plan your journey for you. It's a work of art. And by work of art, I mean any artist, and that includes whether you're a poet like I am or a musician or even an athlete who would just, like, craft their skills as an artist. It requires you to pay close attention. It requires you to redo something. It it, it requires you to know the picture that you want to formulate, even though you don't know exactly how to formulate that. So it's a work in process all the time. It's not like you can say, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to make this one line and it's going to be exact and it's going to look this way. Right. So healing is a, is a work of art because it, it requires our full attention to the process. So you you mentioned uh, Rosina that you uh, you mentioned Talking Trees, and I know that you're the founder mm-hmm. and executive director of Talking Trees. Tell me more about that organization. Sure. So in 2010, when I started to live openly as a survivor. Uh, it was clear to me that was the only path to healing. And so I wanted to share that path. Not even I wanted, I needed to share that path. Because what happens for so many survivors who do heal, we have to always ask the question, 
And that's a difficult question to when you get to the point where you have to ask that. For so many of us, it means that we have to go outside of our family, which means we have to cut contact or at least cut some level of contact with our family. That's a hugely painful process to do. Mm-hmm. It shatters almost everything. Once you come to the point where you have to address your most basic belief in life, that people who brought you into this world and who are connected to you are not going to facilitate your healing. Thus, it questions everything you thought you understood about love and family and sacrifice. And when you have to question your life at those most basic levels, everything gets thrown in the air. Yeah. And so it's a difficult process to be in. And so I did not know how to survive that process. Like, how do you, you go to your family for everything, right? That's what society says. Your family will always have your back. You go to your family. But what happens when you can't go to your family? And if you can't go to your family, then how do you heal? So it was clear to me that I had to somehow begin to reconstruct my concept of family so that I could construct a concept of healing for myself. When I realized how many survivors there were in the world, and at that time we were, we were counting at 40 million, I was bewildered as to how that many people could exist and there'd be so, many, so much silence around this issue. Like, how do you silence 40 million people? There were so few resources, so few. I had to go to research journals. I knew the other 40 million people were not going to research journals to figure this problem out. And so what I literally did um, or how I created uh, Talking Trees was with the idea of bringing the information that I was finding in research journals about survivors into the public realm for other survivors to begin to have tools to heal and so that I could have people that I could create this conversation with, this conversation that I clearly could not have with family members. I needed to have a conversation. I had to find the people and invite them into space to have the conversation with me. And I wanted to be a conversation that was based on principles of of psychology, principles of development, principles of healing, not just about what happened, although that happened at some point come into the conversation too. But I wanted to have conversations about how to heal from this mess that we were in. So I created Talking Trees in order to do that. Now, and Talking Trees is, um, it's accessible via Facebook. Is that is that right? Did you say you posted daily? Um, tell me how yes. that works. Right. And so there are some things that, that, some features that were important to me. One was that the space was accessible. So it is mm-hmm. on Facebook. At some point, actually, we tried to take it, to the website so that people would have to go to the website and access it and then ran into an immediate problem because I I uh, wanted it to be an international organization. Out of the 6,000 members uh, or followers, a third of them are outside of the United States. It's one of the best features. So not everybody outside of the United States can access the website. Uh-oh. And so the Facebook page uh, for better or for worse, is just a platform that is the most accessible that we have found to people worldwide. And so every single day for I don't, at least the last eight years, uh, I get up and, and my first task of the day is to write to Talking Trees. So it was important that it was accessible internationally. 
And it was important that that messages were consistent. I had lived with those messages for 45 years, right? And so if you live with messages for over 40 years, then how you can't change that by by someone showing up randomly to speak to you. There has to be consistency and there has to be reliability. Those things that we often didn't get as children. So when I talked, when I had this idea of building this organization, these are the features that I wanted in it. I wanted to try and give people some sense of stability in, in terms of receiving affirmation and validation for their ability to grow and move on that will capitalize on the resilience that we have already used into in, uh, in order to survive the trauma. And, and so, and yes. So, so people, so people who want to join this network can just simply follow Talking Trees on Facebook. Wow. Yep. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, major accessibility there. Yeah. No requirements of anything. You know, I wanted to ask you, um, about something that you address in this memoir, Too Much Love Is Not Enough. You talk about love with accountability. And I wanted to know what should that look like inside a family? Mm-hmm. Love is, with accountability, I think, comes with a huge responsibility to make sure that people's needs are met. And rather than making sure that a family reputation is intact, there are invariably uh, internal conflicts within a family. And it's the only way, if if the primary goal is to look good, then it's difficult to meet the needs of those family members. So you're not accountable to the family, you're accountable to society. And sometimes you have to choose. And too often, families choose an accountability to society instead of choosing an accountability to the family members. And that's a very dangerous space for children to be in because often that's the problem and that's what creates silence. Everybody's accountable to society and nobody's accountable for what's actually happening within the family system. So a lot, it leaves a lot of room for pain to fester. Children have needs that should be met. They didn't ask to be here. It's somebody's responsibility to be accountable to children. It's not our responsibility to be accountable to society at the risk of leaving, of creating children uh, who have to live with trauma. Yeah, yeah. Um, the voice of this memoir is that of a woman who has absolutely learned through her journey the art of self-care and the art of being kind to herself. That that was my assessment of the voice. Do you think that's an accurate assessment as as the author of this memoir? Yes, and thank you for saying that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Because I meet a lot of, I meet a lot of survivors and, and frequently they'll say like, oh, I want to write 
I want to write my memoir. I want to write my story, but I can't. It's so difficult, you know, and, yeah. and I say, then you're not supposed to. Like I see, and I've read a couple other um, pieces of work, whether it's online or in books, and and I can you can tell when someone writes from a place of victimization versus mm-hmm. a place of surviving and thriving. Mm-hmm. I I started talking trees in 2010. I've been writing daily, every single day for, like I said, at least the last five years. I know at least. Like every single day I get up, I write a message, I figure out what I need or other survivors may need to hear in order to, in order to survive in a more healthy space for that day. Even with doing that work every day, it has taken me eight years to write this memoir. Because mm-hmm. I, I mean, once I started writing it, it took me eight months, but I'm saying it has taken me eight years of healing to the right. point where I could say I'm in a good enough space that I think I can help somebody figure this thing out. But if I weren't, it would have been a it would have been the voice of the victim, right. not the voice of the survivor thriver. So thank you for saying that. Uh and cuz people would ask me for for the last several years like when are you going to write when are you going to write your story or what do we need to know or I had to make sure I was in a good enough space that I can share those words and be that vulnerable. If you if you feel vulnerable in the world already, it's difficult to lean into that vulnerability. I no longer feel vulnerable in the world. I am I know how to I know how to give myself permission to move into and out of those vulnerable spaces because I recognize vulnerability as part of the healing process, not as what I am. So let, let me ask you something. Now you've you've obviously evolved to be a survivor and thriver but what you've got to have bad days you have to find yourself slipping once in a while um all of us do and right all of us slip and we let our minds start to wage war uh with itself and what tools do you use if you're having kind of if you're having a bad day uh I, it's rare it's rare that i have a bad day i tend to have bad hours mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes but but i like that. i do <laughs> yeah i do have tools and but it has come with a lot of recognition one of giving myself permission to feel sad or remorseful or whatever. I give myself permission to do that. Now, one of the things that happens oftentimes is when people are not quite in a space of thriving, as soon as they feel a negative feeling, they panic. Like, oh, my God, I'm like, I'm feeling that. I don't want to feel. I don't do that to myself. If I feel it, I try and explore it and say, oh, what's that about? Oh, you were in the space. Oh, you oh, you had this interview this morning where you had to really uncover some vulnerability and that's still lingering. Like I'm able to have these conversations with myself in a way that gives me permission so that I don't feel stuck. I really finally recognize the difference between my trauma and and my person. They're not the same. Like I have this experience of trauma and sometimes it moves to the forefront, but it's not who I am. Right, you put that yeah. dress on, and it some clothes look better on you than others, but 
none of those clothes are you, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, and so, you know, you learn the difference between what you're wearing today and the core of who you are. And I, I those are real distinct for me. But in addition to that, who, so when I want to get to who I am, I have these things for me that get to my core, remind me of who I am. Uh, as I talk about in the book, one is physical activity, whether it's Taekwondo or running 10 miles uh, or lifting some weights. Like when I, cause when I do things with my body, I get to my core. I feel like I'm at my core. I cannot tell people how important it is to physically move your body, to be in your body. Because for survivors, so many of us leave our bodies metaphorically, right? Like we stop paying pay attention, which is why so many of us have weight issues, health issues, um, whether it's diabetes or with the heart or whatever, because we're, we're we don't pay attention. Like we want this distance between us and this thing that someone ruled, and so we detach from it. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> that's not a good thing. And so being in the body is so important. And physical activity is one way to really get there. And even if it's physical activity sometimes, whether it's playing a musical instrument and you're having to make sure your fingers are exactly where they're supposed to be on that, on those guitar strings or piano or uh, whether it's uh, – a painting and that, that paint stroke will not be right if you don't have that finger exactly pointed where it's supposed to be. But anything that really makes you pay attention to what your body is doing will get you closer to your your real self if you pay attention to it, which is another reason I say healing is a work of art. And so I do have those things. I also write poetry and and do a lot of other writing that just reminds me who I am, no matter what my feelings may be today. Uh, wow, that's inspirational um, for for all of us. And on a, on a related note, uh, in the first part of the memoir, you share that when you were 27, you had, and I'm quoting here, adopted a look and attitude of confidence in spite of deep insecurities. And that is something that I can relate to deeply in my own experience as a sexual assault survivor. And I just, I wanted to ask you, I mean, do you think it's a wise thing to do to to fake it and, you know, fake it till you make it, as as they say? Or do you think mm-hmm. it stymies the healing process? I mean, personally, in, in my own experience, I think it's a combination of both good and bad as a strategy. And I, I'm sure this is something that many uh, many people can relate to. And I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on that is this a is this a good strategy <laughs> i think it's i think it's necessary on some levels like the world doesn't stop yeah. if you have children or you're in school or you have a job like the world's not going to stop for you people will say things at best people will say oh i'm sorry that happened to you at best right but nobody's going to stop the world for you to do your little healing thing right <laughs> right <laughs> and so so some so to a degree we have to 
But I think what's the biggest problem, at least what I relate to, is that I didn't know that healing was even an option. I didn't know. And that's why I, that's another reason why the book and Talking Trees is so important and reaching out to other survivors is so important and living openly is so important. I had no idea that healing was an option. And this is real, and this may be, this is one of the distinctions between adult um, sexual assault uh, survivors and uh, survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Assuming, which is often not the case, but assuming that a sexual assault occurs in adulthood, you have this idea of what normalcy is. Mm-hmm. When you're an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse and incest, you have no clue what normal is. You have no clue what you're trying to get back to because it's never been there. So you don't even know healing is possible. There's this assumption that this is just how life is because there's never been any other way for you. So that's what it was. That's what it was for me. So this, and so that's why, you know, it was a matter of creating this healing path for people, not just, not just saying, oh, you can heal, but like literally the path had to be created. When I started talking trees, my first objective was literally to create language because there was no language to talk about this this experience that you were that you never intended to talk about. So you right. develop words and languages. So when we began to talk about it, people would say things like, "Well, what have you liked it? Well, what have I liked it?" And which is where the guilt and shame comes from. I said, "Well, what did, what did you like?" Well, you know, I had attention and. And sometimes people, you know, the violator did nice things. I said, yeah, you know what? Guess what? Real, normal, regular families, they have that without the sexual abuse. Like the the things that you say you like are things that all children like and are entitled to without sexual abuse. But you don't even, that seems like such a simple concept. Mm -hmm. But when you're an adult survivor, that's not a concept that even occurs to you. You just think this is how it is. Yeah. Rosina, I mean, just it's it's amazing uh, how much I learned from your memoir and how much I'm learning just talking to you. Um, And uh, I'm absolutely uh, going to uh, continue to learn from you um, by following Talking Trees. And we are almost out of time here, but before we close, I, I just wanted to ask you, other than your memoir, Too Much Love is Not Enough, uh, which I absolutely, uh, truly believe should be required reading for the human condition, as uh, Indira Hennard said. But other than your memoir, what books can you recommend to incest survivors who are in their early stages of their path to healing? Actually, the book that I'm going to recommend, it has nothing to do with surviving sexual abuse. And here's the reason why I'm going to recommend it, because as much as we need to heal from sexual abuse, we don't heal from sexual abuse by focusing our entire lives on sexual abuse. Like one of the ways, one of the ways that we heal is by discovering all of who we are supposed to be. That's so important, and it's really difficult to get in our minds because it feels 
the sexual abuse feels so heavy and so overwhelming that we forget that we're really already whole human beings. We're already whole. We're not trying to get whole. We're already whole human beings. And getting a, an opportunity to receive ourselves as that. So the book I like most is called The Four Agreements. And you may know the author better than me. I can't think of it off the top of my head right now. I'm sorry. It's The Four Agreements. And the reason I like The Four Agreements is because most of the, the four agreements that he comes up with is uh, are agreements that we really struggle with as survivors, especially like the not take things so personally, that sort of stuff. So we can, so it's a way, if you take all four of the agreements that are addressed in that book, you are, you are healing from sexual abuse. So that's what I mean. Like they're not, even though he's not talking about sexual abuse, they're all issues that we have that come along with this, with this, um, uh, issue of this fear of abandonment and this feeling of insignificance. When you have these, the fear of abandonment and, and um, feeling of insignificant, those agreements are going to be a struggle for you. Yeah. I, so right. And so that's the book that I would recommend most. I just I just uh, walked over to my bookshelf and pulled my copy off the shelf, and uh, <laughs> you've inspired me to reread this book because it's because it's been too way too long. But yes, the Four Agreements, a Toltec wisdom book, and it's by Don Miguel Ruiz R U I Z, and another subtitle on the cover. Uh, says it's a practical guide to personal freedom and and uh that that really is really is true i'm i'm absolutely going to read this book now rosina <laughs> um but anyway that's all the time we have uh everyone rosina bakari uh thank you for writing such a brave and vulnerable and hopeful memoir everyone uh too much love is not enough a memoir of silence of childhood sexual abuse uh rosina where can people get this book uh other than amazon uh they can also get it at barnes and nobles online okay. and and really whatever your favorite online places for books you can get it there. Okay. It, 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 it will be there. It will be accessible. If you walk into a local bookstore and ask for it, they may have to order it for you, and it may take as much as five days. But it's a, okay. it's a book is pretty accessible. Okay, great, great. Um, Rosina, thank you so much for joining me today. It really has been an honor.